Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. We are in the throes of hurricane season. We've already had several systems pop up in the Atlantic. I think one in the Pacific that I'm aware of. We have Jamie here, the acting uh, director, I believe is the title, of the National Hurricane Center. He is uh, really well-versed in his role, and he's been with the National Hurricane Center for a really long time. He's a storm surge expert. He's a subject matter expert with, I was reading his awards just the other day, he has so many awards, including the Sammy, which is a big deal, I guess. And I'm just looking through, so he's the real deal. And so it's a, it's a pleasure to have him on the show and to hear his insights, especially for us in the community and emergency management, as we look to address concerns with preparing communities and doing our jobs in hurricanes. So again, a big deal. Jamie, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank, thank you for having me course uh you know so let's talk about this real quick so all the predictions show that this year is going to be you know a big year for name storms we've had a lot of name storms it's increasing i've been to lots of hurricanes and like every year they seem to be breaking the record and that's a problem um and so just from your perspective of now that we're in hurricane season and just for everybody's situational awareness we recorded this a couple weeks earlier so if there's been a storm between the time of recording and now, you know, apologies there. But we're starting to get into hurricane season. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? What what keeps you up at night when you're thinking about hurricane season this year? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, NOAA is officially um, predicting yet another active season. Um, you know, if the projections are right, it would be roughly in line with what we saw last hurricane season. Um, and we're running so far, so far, um, what portion of the hurricane season we've experienced we're running running hot meaning we're you know there's there's no immediate signs before us that 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 projection of an active season wouldn't wouldn't play itself out so mm. you know my best guess is you will have something pretty close to what we had last year in terms of overall mm. activity now the, the storms may or may not go to the same geographic areas but in terms of overall activity about what we saw last year so when I think of predictions, so I'm a data guy. I did GIS for a while, um, big time analyst. And I've tried to explain to incident commanders and other people who don't really have a data background of uh, one, what the cone of uncertainty really actually does mean. They, they always get that one wrong. Right. But a, as we get closer and closer to the event, you know, our predictive analysis goes way up. We, right. we you know, much more uh, tuned in and the percentage of accuracy when we're talking about predicting storms and, and, and a season, right? Uh, you say it's most likely. When I hear most likely, I'm hearing over 50% chance. Other people might hear 100%. What is, what is a logical uh, step process where I should think, when I hear predictive from the National Hurricane Center, this is what I need to start to anticipate here. Like, how should I act? Well, I mean, let's let's first talk about the the term uncertainty because you know we're we're hearing more and more that you know while we think this phrase is understood, maybe maybe we need to explain it a bit better. So let's say you're getting ready to drive home from work and you call your your wife or husband, you know, kids, boyfriend, girlfriend, and you know there's rush hour and you're like, I'm probably gonna be home between five thirty and six, but you know depending on how bad your traffic is. Now, as you start that commute and get closer and closer to home, that 
that bound or that range of be home between 530 and 6 narrows and narrows and narrows. And think about it. When you're one mile away from your house, you don't say I'm going to be home between 530 and 6. You probably say I'm going to be home around 545. Hmm. That's the evolution of uncertainty or the expression of uncertainty. And it's the same with a hurricane. When you're predicting a hurricane five days out, it's no different than when you started the commute. You have to put these these error bounds on it or these uncertainty bounds on it. But then as you get closer and closer to landfall or impact, um, the the expression of uncertainty collapses and narrows. I love that. And that's what the cone is basically trying to convey. And you notice the cone sort of, we call it sweeps, but it sort of widens, if you will, as you go out in time, because it's including increasing expressions of uncertainty as one goes further out in forecast. Real quick, we're gonna pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. The L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. The Readiness Lab is trailblazing disaster readiness. Early access for the highly anticipated course, Emergency Management Response for Dynamic Populations is currently live. Think you have what it takes? Join us in Atlanta for an immersive experience. Space is limited to 40. Go to TheReadinessLab.com forward slash training to learn more. Okay, let's jump back in. Uh, that's a great explanation for using the, the drive tech. Cause we all do that. And we, we understand that we recognize that. And so it's a uh, putting in the context that people can understand. I had a, uh, I don't want to give his title cause I would give it away, but we had a supervisor, let's just say that get in front of media and look at the cone of uncertainty and said, okay, this is where the eye is going to be. And he, he literally named like half of the East coast. He's, I was like, that's one, that's not where the eye is. And two, that's not what the cone is saying. And so there, there is a language problem. There's a uh, communication issue here where uh, we need to address that. And I, I like how, you know, we're uncertain ab- about if the word uncertainty is, is the best word. Uh, for a guy who has been addressing emergency management gaps and the lack of standardization because of lack of definitions, I think it's okay to use the word and people just need to educate themselves on the words. At the same time, we need to be able to communicate effectively with our communities to be able to deal with that. Storm surge, as you're an expert in, you you obviously know this in communications, uh, it, it is difficult for people to wrap their head around the differences of storm surge versus, you know, high tide and what these things different means. And, and um, you know, it's it's a, um, a problem that can and should be addressed. And uh, clearly you're addressing it right now. When you get out there and you're working with, the community, uh, especially as you go out to these hurricanes, are there pain points where you're like, I just wish my counterparts understood what X, X and Y means for moving forward? Like how, like if we could address that now, what would you say those would be? That's an excellent question. I've never asked that. So thank you. Um, This one's easy for me. (laughs) I wish I could get um, 
my counterparts in emergency management to stop looking at models online mm. and on social media. Um, it, it's the analogy I like to make is you wouldn't ask your neighbor to perform open heart surgery on you. So why in the world would you believe a stranger or a strange website um, online? Um, you know, first and foremost, the, the, the notion that you're seeing the same models or the same quality of information online that we're getting here at the Hurricane Center is, let me just debunk that. We're, we're able to see uh, the model and the data, the models and the data at a, at a much deeper, richer uh, format. And then we have the ability to extract information from that data feed, which is above and beyond anything that you could rummage through and find online. Um, secondarily, uh, our forecasters here are the are the best, the best in the world, period. Um, and we beat hands down everything, all the modeling that's out there. So we pull those models in at a much more sophisticated level. Um, than what you're seeing online, apply algorithms and techniques to process that data, and then apply ex extensive experience to that process. And the end result is our forecaster dramatically, forecasters dramatically improve upon the models and produce a superior forecast. So mm. the bottom line is, I'm, I'm going to sort of make a joke out of this, um, just to sort of, you know, keep the audience engaged. You know, we get a lot of messages and phone calls from emergency managers that'll be like, you know, hey, did you see the European model? And, you know, flippantly, I want to say, yeah, we do this for a living. <laughs> but but it's that is if you are able to get someone from the National Hurricane Center on the phone during a hurricane, which is no small feat, hmm. asking them about the European model is is, you know, talk about burying the lead. Hmm. Um, that shouldn't be your first question. You, you should say, hey, I'm from county or parish, whatever. Uh, you, you know, I'm on the edge of the cone. Help me understand what that means from a certainty perspective and how I should be preparing. Uh, you have a, you, the, the, your same pain point is our same pain point. Because when we talk about like all hazards plans, that's like a pretty common thing that we create. We can understand the likelihood of a, a, of a hazard and, and the timeline of a hazard, earthquakes versus storms versus wildfires, you know, active shooter, whatever you name it. But when we go in and somebody will say to us, uh, you know, outside of this realm, they'll say, well, have you thought about wildfires? Yeah, I live in California, you know, like. Like I'm still like it, it's it's mind boggling. So your pain point, I, there might there might be a lot of light bulbs going off, but there's probably a lot of people like, oh, I hate that guy. I don't want to be that guy. Right. And right. And I mean, I mean, it's look. You know, one of the things we benefit from in the hurricane business or the weather business is there's a lot of interest in it. People are fascinated by it and they're interested in it and they want to learn, and that's great because it helps make our um, emergency management professional professionals like sort of well po poised if you will the challenge is the mind will start to play tricks on you and people start to believe they can forecast the hurricane and you can't i mean i, I don't want to put too fine of a point on it but you, you can't beat our forecasters 
And what happens when you try to look at information and make your own forecast, it closes your mind off subconsciously from hearing the official forecast. It's what's called a, a, a mental model. Once you've gone and looked at all these things online and formulated that it's going here and it's going to be you know strong this strong, when the official forecast comes out, it makes it harder for your mind to digest and process that information. So again, you know, I, I know people are interested and it's a natural tendency to, to want to do that, but just be really cognizant that subconsciously it might be closing your mind off from, from hearing real-time information. I'm going to call this guy out here for a second. He's on your side of the house, Dr. Mike Paddock. He is, he was embedded in our uh, team uh, as a NOAA liaison and just phenomenal. And um, I mean, we were able to, to move so much faster with him on the team because when I was doing GIS and he was uh, bringing in, you know, his expertise, we were able to, uh, you know, create something really uh, powerful for both leadership to understand, but he was able to explain things so uh, accurately and um, with real intent to help people understand. And the reason why I call him out is because uh, in Hurricane Harvey, we had an individual come into uh, a professor, come into the JFO, the Joint Field Office, and he was like, it, I, I have created a better model than everybody else. And uh, there's going to all this flooding is going to be in all these different areas. And Mike and I are looking at I'm looking at it from a data perspective of like, you know, I would say novice compared to obviously Mike's perspective. But I'm like, this doesn't look right. And Mike's basically laughing at the guy like he's trying to be professional. But we we set up this precedent both then and at all other disasters. Everyone uses the same information. We use the official sources from the official people and uh, that that bias that starts to create it like, oh, I made this my made my own analysis, my own predictive analysis or that that mental model. I have a mental model that I'm very attractive, but I don't think other people think that, which is a problem. But um, it does help my confidence. Um, but you're 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 saying like this amazing thing. You're actually saying several things at the same time, but one of them should be everybody should be using the same source. And they should be using you as the source. Well, I mean, just think about this logically. I mean, because I might come across as maybe a salesman here. But think about this logically. Um, the Hurricane Center has so much visibility and scrutiny, you know, from the public and the media and Congress. I mean, you can imagine the intense pressure we're under to make the forecast as accurate as possible. If there was a secret model out there, if somebody had invented some secret thing that you know, mysteriously was a, a breakthrough, there is no entity that has a greater incentive to grab that information than us. Mm. I mean, just think about the congressional oversight and, and just the amount of public you know, scrutiny we're under. Um, to get it right. Well, yeah. Right. So I, I mean, just, I'm just going to tell you like it is. If, if anybody has invented a model that's that good, um, I would insist on having it right away. And if we're not using that model or insisting that we have it right away, um, that's very telling. And so the bottom line is there, there's nothing out there that's going to like mysteriously and instantly solve hurricanes. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, the way science moves at very slow incremental 
you know, it, it, there, there's not a breakthrough that's just going to happen. Um, and I think if, if we could convince people of that, it would relax their minds to stop, you know, looking for and grasping at these, you know, so-called solutions. Mm -hmm. um, because if a solution is out there, I'm going to know about it and insist we have it right away. Half the problem, I think, is that we found solutions and we're not implementing those solutions. And people keep on trying to come up with new solutions, like implement the things that actually have been tested and that work. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're calling that out in such a great way. Uh, just for the sake of the end of the story here, uh, when we were doing a field, uh, essentially field tests, looking at uh, high water marks and going at that when we were out in the field, uh, that model was not even close to the predictive analysis of the general consensus. And so it just shows that uh, fringe ideas, they're fringe until they're tested. And if they're tested and validated, then everybody should use it. Yep. But when one person comes up with something that is far off and everything else, then we have to start doing um, you know, some situational awareness around that. And, and also rest assured that we have a, a pretty rigorous and disciplined approach for testing and evaluating uh, promising new research. And so, you know, a, a lot of things um, are very promising until they go through that process. And then, you know, there, there are faults or flaws that, that come, you know, come to light. So, you know, we've got, and we just built, and we can even talk about this, we just converted our, our library into um, a research lab to facilitate even more evaluation of these, you know, promising new tools and, and projects. So, you know, I would say to, to people out there that think they have a solution to hurricanes or think they've got, you know, created a breakthrough, you know, come put it in this lab and see if it can live up to the pressures of a real-time storm. Uh, okay, so let's talk about real-time storms then, or at least uh, historical storms, rather. Uh, you're a storm surge expert truly an expert in this space uh you look at uh superstorm sandy or you know sandy uh, i hate the term superstorm but that's okay it was a storm it was massive it was a it was a surge issue we have lots of those issues going on right now um in terms of surge and the emergency managers let's say they have a basic understanding we don't need to go in the, the terminologies of of how you know water impacts land what can we start to do as emergency managers to better prepare our communities? Is it really, uh, is it things like uh, oyster reefs? Should we build focusing that or should we be focusing on like building barriers? Uh, Houston appears to be sinking, you know, it's, uh, you know, smashing into the crust. So what are different things that we can do to prevent and or reduce the impact of surge uh, along the coast? Yeah. I mean, I've actually, published research on this, uh, it, you know, Sweet. For, yes. <laughs> so for, for the areas or the parts of the country that can, um, go this route, and this is more of a, you know, Southern Gulf of Mexico type route. It turns out that the mangrove plants, um, are an incredibly effective way of mitigating the energy of the storm. They, they really don't stop storm surge, but they, they really knock it down and knock it back pretty effectively. So that's, that's the so-called soft, solution uh, obviously you know you can't plant mangroves in the, in the northeast um and, and in those cases um there there are other ways to to do mitigation but sort of be mindful that in some parts of the country people want to retain their coastline aesthetic you know they're, they're mm. 
we all love the coast. It's aesthetic in many parts of the country. It's a huge economic and tax um, boon for the local communities. So there are all ways to weave in these sort of soft ways of, of doing it. Um, that's, that's one way, but that's only buying, buying time um, because sea level is absolutely rising and it's you know, in all likelihood going to continue to rise in our lifetime. At some point, you got to start looking at some of the harder, the harder aspects of this, which is um, maybe when a community is hit pretty hard by storm surge and coastal flooding, mm. maybe you don't build back in in those areas, and, and that's going to work differently in each location because the states have different you know rules and laws about how they would do that. But you know, one of the things we're doing, and you can see this in in this data set from. FEMA called recurring loss, where basically you see how frequently a given mm. parcel floods. And we we have situations where the same spot is flooding over and over and over and over again. And yet we're, we seem to, as a country to be unwilling to, to, to learn from this and, and, and sort of adapt and evolve. Um, and, you know, if you if you compare... Uh, how how we do it here in the United States versus how other countries um, do it. You know, a lot of other countries invest a lot of money on the front end to mitigate or prevent the disaster. And then they're terrible on the back end in response and recovery. Here yeah. in the U.S., you know, we're really good on the back end, mm -hmm. but we don't do enough on the front end to mitigate or stop the disaster in the first place. I was... Uh... I was in Japan in 2011 um, dealing with the tsunami and um, research came out that they had basically a thousand years ago, just over a thousand years ago, they had built a wall and said, don't build beyond this wall. And they could actually see houses, newer and newer houses over a thousand years, getting closer and closer to the coastline. And then the tsunami came in and it came like right around those historical areas of where they said, don't build beyond the wall because they're, they said, Hey, Everything got destroyed beyond this. Don't don't do this again. And uh, so, but they are terrible at response. I'm calling that out. But uh, they are learning, and they they have learned from the past mistakes. Uh, but just looking at the tsunami response and and how that was impacted uh, their communities, it, it shows that we need to keep lessons learned fresh, and we need to implement the solutions that have been found. Uh, doing interviews in the ninth ward in louisiana incredibly difficult because they had the option to to leave and to be bought out and to turn that whole area into a park and uh i felt for I, as a human i understand like there's culture and historical context and all this stuff but they're setting themselves up for another vulnerability and and, and more importantly and, and you can probably talk to this more than i can weather repeats itself it's not like like there's no chance for a hurricane again you look at the path of Hurricane Katrina versus the Hurricane Laura, I believe. It's essentially the same path. And so it's like, okay, if this stuff repeats itself, why are we setting ourselves up for vulnerability? Um, but I, I think you made a good call out about we could probably do more on the, the front end. Um, man, mangrove uh, uh, trees, are they technically trees? That's a good question. Is a tree or a plant? Right? You know, it's uh... a plant for sure. <laughs> Yeah, you, you raise a good point. You know, one of one of my greatest frustrations is that, um, you, you know, we know with 
you know, a fair amount of fidelity, how far storm surge can go inland via these risk maps that we produce here at the Hurricane Center. I mean, we're one of the few entities that, that produce this in, in, in the country, much less the federal government, where we run thousands and thousands and thousands of hurricane scenarios. And then we produce these risk derivatives of how far the water can go inland and how deep it could be, which mm. is a, a remarkably rich data set for planning for hurricanes, you know, seeing what critical infrastructures are inundated, seeing what evacuation routes are inundated, you know, seeing what shelters are or aren't, you know, what hospitals. I mean, it's a remarkably rich data set for local communities to prepare for at great fidelity, mm. granularity, um, what a hurricane can or can't do. And it seems like every hurricane that comes along, um, you know, there's this, there's this hum of, we didn't have enough lead time. And it's, no. this is, it, you know, frustrating because yes, you do. You can look right now, give me any city in the country, any state, any county in the country, and I can show you what a category four hurricane is capable of doing. Um, right. But for whatever reason, as a, as, as, as a country, we're very reactionary in a sense that we wait for the hurricane to threaten us and then try to do it. And that's why where this notion of I don't have enough lead time is coming from. If you wait for a hurricane to figure out what hospitals, what infrastructure, what roads, um, there's no way you can do that within the two to three days that one is typically afforded. Pete Gaynor talked about this, uh, former head of FEMA, and talked about the our culture, our preparedness culture in the United States needs to shift. I, I tried to get away from the word preparedness. I try to use readiness just because as a connotation of doomsday preppy, something that's yeah. never going to happen, essentially. Um, and, and yet we have to start looking at risk much more analytically minded. I think uh, just historically speaking, emergency management from the background of emergency management, i.e. before 9-11, you know, retired fire and police, now it's becoming more of an analytical based, uh, response based organization and or field. We're starting to understand a, a little bit more, I'd say truly a little bit more about the role of analytics and risk and almost looking at it like from an insurance perspective. We the, the fastest way to get stakeholders on in, involved in preparedness or readiness is to say, hey, this is actually cost averse if you don't do this because, it, you know, the risk is so high here. Um, and you, you really don't want to be on the news for your hospital going under literally underwater. So, again, great call outs as we shift in here in the, in the last segment. And, and by the way, uh, you were talking uh, about sea level rise and things changing after the show i'm going to ask you where i should buy real estate in antarctica because i want to get ahead of that game uh but in terms of the this last shift here we're talking about storm surge we're talking about getting ready we're talking uh, actually really great call out by the way category three and above last 20 years has been under 72 hours and that like oh we didn't have time to prepare well risk duh, duh so you've called out that you've called out hey contact us and get it from the source so you have the right information in terms of the emergency managers going into the field now what do you want them to know absolutely know about hurricanes so that they can be more effective in their jobs you know let's learn from you know i've been here for 23 years and 
you know, as short as maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there was this notion within the emergency management community that the public couldn't digest or handle risk information. It would scare them, you know, or they would flood our phone lines with questions or, you know, there were all these fears about presenting risk information to the general public. Um, and, and a lot of things were held back, you know, just mm -hmm. not to put uh, too fine of a point on it. And for the younger generation, I want to encourage you that nowhere in history can you find an example of holding back information um, as being a wise decision. You know, transparency and honesty is always the best course of action when, when working with people. You know, not only tell them why they're at risk, but how you came about determining why they're at risk. And then your trust factor is going to go way up and you're going to get better compliance on a whole myriad of things. And, you know, one great example of, of this um, in New York City Office of Emergency Management, they're probably one of the most progressive uh, emergency management offices I work with. You know, they do such a great job of, of working with us to understand the science. I mean, they ask such great, great, great questions. And then obviously they're converting that into something that's more palatable and understanding for understandable for their for their general public and then pushing that information out you know hard mm. you know, not not being timid about it at all um you know to the extent that we could get a bit more of that you know this this overcoming the fear of communicating with your constituents um, would really help us within the hurricane community it's amazing uh, i can't think of a single use case where holding back information and allowing people to assume the answer has been beneficial for me in any case. And just shooting, shooting it straight, right? I mean, just telling people how it is. I, I think we, great, great call out again. I think we underestimate and we've had a problem with communication in the past. Uh, we have Eddie Bertola at my company. He's like a mass notifications, true, true expert here, basically reinvented Amber Alerts for CHP. And he talked about moving communication styles away from the fear of communication and like the, fe the fearful messages, i.e. In, in hurricanes, write your social security number on your arm. That's the scary message. Okay. The, the, there's, a, there's another approach here. And I think through data, data uh, allows people to assess the, the right level of warning instead of starting to assume. So again, great call outs, true transparency and honesty on my end. Uh, it's truly a pleasure to talk to you and to hear your perspective and, and to have you on the show. So thank you again so much, Jamie, for uh, coming on and sharing your thoughts about hurricanes as we are in hurricane season right now. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, everybody. This is my shameless plug. As always, if you like this episode, which you should have, obviously, we learned a lot here. You got to give us that five star rating and subscribe. Got to check us out on our social media. Put in your comments about what you're doing right now to work on the front end of hurricanes uh he named several resources in, in this episode where you can go and start looking at risk you can start understanding the cone of uncertainty a lot better you can you can put in mangrove plants you can do all these different things in your different communities to get ahead of a hurricane so it doesn't impact and if you are going to experience a hurricane we hope you stay safe we hope you, your communities will stay dry and your shelters uh, will save lives and we'll see you for next week